This morning is Sunday. It is November 1st, 2009. Our message this morning is called Gibeonites. Uh, you can go ahead and turn to Luke 17. If you're a guest with us today, we sure appreciate you being here. Uh, our worship is different than a lot of churches. We're not saying it's the right way. We're not saying it's the only way. We're just saying it's the way we do it, and we're inviting you to join. Uh, if you thought worship was strange, uh, wait and hang around for the sermon and potluck. There's no telling where to go from here. I told you I'd go to Luke 17, right? Yes. Okay, well, I'm going to read to you from Psalm 34. You stay in Luke 17. I uh, will not lie to you this morning. Psalm 34, listen to this word. By the word... No, wrong Psalm. Psalm 34, this is verse 6. This poor man called... And the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. Hear this from Psalm 40. Stay where you're at. A poor man called, and the Lord saved him from all of his troubles. Listen to Psalm 40. This will be the second and third verse. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth. A hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and put their trust in the Lord. Corinthians also speaks, Paul writing the letter to the people, and he says, Not many of you were of noble birth when you were called. Not many of you were wise or influential by human standards. It sounds a little bit like when God goes shopping for a people, he goes to the discount aisle. It seems to me like he calls people who are already in trouble. People who are discontented. This is really important because if you think back to the moment at which you first began being drawn to the Lord, or if you find yourself in trouble now, there is a perspective that comes from this that should never change. Sometimes, for whatever reason, Jesus kind of cleans up a life. People begin to devote themselves to Him, and details get straightened out. Sometimes even sentences get pardoned. And as time goes by, we have a way of forgetting where we've come from and what's been done to us, so that when someone does something to you or doesn't do something for you, we want to enforce a judgment rather than mercy. We want to give them what they deserve rather than what they need. Where would any of us be if God gave us what we deserved rather than what we needed? James 2.13 has long been one of my favorite scriptures. It says, His mercy triumphs over His judgment. Praise God for that. Because if Eric Stevens got what he deserved, not just back then, but today, it wouldn't be good for me. But he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. And he called us to be of a like spirit. The body of Christ long, for far too long, has been viewed simply as judgmental. A bunch of people who have no fun and look down their noses at everybody else. Have you ever known anyone like that? Have you ever been anyone like that? man yelled at me one time that I was going to hell because I was outside of a bar. I knew that. That's why I was there. I was trying to forget about that. I, years later, was born again and found myself doing the same thing because it's what I was taught. That was not the message that Jesus came with. That's not the message that he had. John the Baptist had that message and he broke open the way. His ministry lasted six months. The king of the universe had a message that was full of mercy and compassion for anybody who wanted a change. 
The only people that ever received harsh judgment from Jesus were religious leaders. Boy, I wish, I wish we could have a three-year public ministry of Jesus today. Do you think there would be a reformation in the church? Since if you're here and you feel slightly condemned, if you're here and you're frustrated with your way of life and you want it to change, the word that came forth in worship was yoke yourself to Jesus. He's not like his church presents him. He's gentle. He's humble of heart. And he will teach you the way that you should go. He will teach you. He's merciful. And he's patient. He requires one thing of you. A desire for him. And that desire needs to grow in you every day. And the more you desire Him, the more it will show up in your actions. It's the church who's invented a list of rules that if you don't follow, you're excommunicated. Aren't you glad that the people that claim that right don't really have it? (laughs) Jesus doesn't throw people away. They might walk away, but He doesn't throw people away. Are you in Luke 17? Jesus said to His disciples, it's funny, if this were written in its uh, original language, this would... Called Jesus Yeshua, a name that not many are familiar with. It would call his disciples Talmudim. This is a reminder to me every time we pick up this word that this comes from a culture that is not ours. It comes from the people that are of the East and we're a people that are of the West. Your very acceptance of the gospel requires you to understand something that is not natural to you. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to have to be in a humbled position of not having it all together and let someone teach you. Saints, don't let your own pride be the obstacle to you receiving all from Jesus that you can receive. Everybody who receives the gospel receives it in this manner. Lord, I don't understand and I need that you would teach me. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. That phrase, things that cause people to sin. Things that cause them to sin is one Greek word. It's scandalon. It's where we get the English word scandal, right? Does anybody want to be caught in a scandal? Probably not, least of all our politicians. When you say scandal, it implies that somebody did something and it was outed, right? This Greek word scandalon is actually the stick in a trap that falls. You know in the Elmer Fudd Bugs Bunny saga? They would put a little box with a stick, and when the rabbit would go under it, he'd pull the stick out from under the box to trap the rabbit. In Greek, you would refer to that as a scandalon. There are things in our lives that will push you, that will try to ensnare you and trap you in sin. This happens. It's bound to happen. You need to make it your mission not to be one that is like that for other people. Is that simple enough? Not to cause people to be snared. It's funny, you wouldn't think that those that call themselves by the name Christian would do that. But when we stand in front of somebody and misrepresent God's intentions towards them, isn't that exactly what happens? Anybody in here was damaged early in life because somebody who represented God, some authority figure, said something ugly to you? These things are bound to happen, but woe to the one through whom they come. It is better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Boy, that's a interesting thing, huh? If your brother sins. Do you remember the first murderer said, Am I my brother's keeper? Well, according to Jesus, we are. We have an obligation to represent God correctly. We have an obligation to care about the person on our left and right. This means 
that if I'm in sin and Cody loves me, he will rebuke me. That doesn't mean that uh, because we don't want to be a scandal on to someone, we refuse to speak to them. That's not love. It means that we represent God accurately. So if your brother is in sin, rebuke him. What's the next phrase, though? If he repents, forgive him. Sometimes the church is very good at rebuking and not very good at forgiving. There was a little girl in the seventh grade in my junior high school that did something that was kind of unwholesome. You would think that it would have faded away after a month or after six months. By the end of the eighth grade, when I left, she was still referred to almost exclusively by the nickname that referred to that, that one event. What is it about us that wants to label people with a mistake and saddle them with it for their entire lives? What is it about you that would do that to someone else or yourself? So you didn't get something right. Thomas Edison was said to have tried more than 900 times at a light bulb. Is that what you remember him for, his 900 failures? Why is it that we think that God only looks at our failures? Why have we been taught that what he evaluates is your sin, how far you are off of the mark? Is it maybe that we're projecting something upon him? Maybe because what we notice about other people is how bad off they are, we think that's what he noticed? Because the Bible that I have been studying now for all of my adult life portrays him as compassionate and willing to forgive and placing sin as far as the east is from the west if you're willing to walk away from it. Not identifying people by it, but what does the church call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Referred to in Bible dictionaries as the doubter. That was one moment in his life. Did he finish his life that way? So why would we label him that way? We don't call Peter the denier. In fact, some have elevated him to a pope-like status. What's the difference? Why is Thomas the one of the twelve that's picked on? He's the first person in all of the scripture to call Jesus both Lord and God. And that's not something people outside of our church know. <laughs> I mean, there are, I'm sure are people there that do. But I've never met anybody outside this church that pointed that out. Why? Saints, there is a process in the body of Christ that is chastening. You are rebuked and you are forgiven. This is a part of any discipline. And by the way, the Hebrew word talmudim, the Greek word disciples, both of these that are being referred to here, means one who is trained, one who is disciplined for the purpose of being like their master. This is a process in the body of Christ. Nobody should be discouraged when they're being disciplined. Hebrews says that this is being treated as a legitimate son. If you see me in the park and a little kid is breaking every rule in the park, and I'm standing there and I'm watching it but doing nothing, and the little kid is standing on top of swing sets and all kind of things that could hurt him, and I'm standing there but not doing anything, you can make a lot of assumptions but the one that ought to come to your mind first is, that must not be my kid. Because if it was, that would certainly be a parent to him. This is how God is in our lives. If he is your father, he will most certainly discipline you. This is a part of the church of God's process. And if it's membership only, if there's no community involved, if it is only sit in a seat and soak, you may not experience that. But you may also not be a son. And the kingdom is comprised of sons who are led by his spirit, who are disciplined by him, who are loved by him. And I want to be a part of his kingdom. 
If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back, comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. How often ought you forgive Brad if he doesn't measure up to your expectation? <clears throat> this phrase literally is the way that we would use the phrase million. Right? Million is a finite number, but that's not how we use it. Right? You remember the scene in the movie? Guy says, so, sweetheart, what are my chances with you? You know? She goes, like one in a million. He says, so there is a chance. <laughs> that's not what she meant, is it? When Jesus speaks to his disciple and says this, it is a colloquialism, a Hebrew expression that means as many times as it takes. How limitless is God's forgiveness in your life? Limitless. How limitless ought our forgiveness for one another be? <coughs> limitless. Jesus goes on and he tells uh, a parable. But first his apostles are shocked at this. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The thought of having to forgive anyone that wronged you as many times as they might wrong you prompted a response from the men that are the pillars of our faith. They said, oh no, you're going to have to increase our trust, Lord. You're going to have to help us out with this. Probably immediately things came to their mind, like someone who wronged them. Come on, if you close your eyes right now and think about it, can you not think of a name, one that pops up, two that pops up? How about when you drive through a certain area of town? certain place where you grew up, when you think about a teacher or a stepmother or something in your life, isn't there a name that comes up, somebody that's offended you, somebody that's hurt you? It's a way that the devil tries to snare people. He tries to entrap us. He tries to keep us from being like Jesus. It is a scandal on, but the problem is it's not the offender who's caught in the trap. It's the one who was offended. The better part of your Christian walk You'll have to learn to do what Jesus did on the cross, what Stephen did while rocks were flying at his face. Say, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And you might say, but they do understand. They know good and well. They're, they've been around me enough to know right where to stick the knife and how to turn it. You really think that nobody in the entire crowd knew what they were doing when they were stoning Stephen? But when we pray for people, we need to pray for them according to what they need, not what they deserve. A good practice to get into is when you are hurt, begin praying for the people that hurt you. And not praying that fire fall from heaven on them, but be praying that God's Spirit envelop them, change them, bless them, exhilarate them. The same things that you would want. Now, all of this was difficult for the apostles, so Jesus taught something. And this is really the text that we wanted to get to today. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. The problem is not that they do not have enough faith, not that they do not have enough trust. They just need to be determined about putting their trust into action. So Jesus tells them a parable. The point of this parable is to remove from them the obstacle that is causing them to keep from putting God's word into action. Okay? If God says forgive Gabriel as many times as it takes to forgive him, what would be the obstacle there? But, but Lord... Do you know what Gabriel did? But Lord, what about me? But Lord, do you know the way that Bob treated me? Right? And you meet people long enough and they will give you their list. They nurse them like a newborn that needs to be fed every couple hours. They don't often change them. But they do nurse them. They just live in the mess that it makes. So Jesus wants to remove that. 
And listen to what he says. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to that servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? Let's put this in more practical terms. Let's suppose somebody works for you, and the first hour of their day was difficult. But they work for you for eight hours in a day. And they come in after that difficult hour. Are you right there to pat them on the back and say, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for doing that. Here, take a rest for the rest of the seven hours. Let me fan you and feed you grapes while you're on the clock. If you have an employer like that, would you please present their name into the offering box before you leave? That's not the way that employees are treated, how much more servants that were purchased. Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me? While I eat and drink, after that you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Would he shower praise and accolades upon a servant because he served? Now that is his function. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The perspective of Psalm 34 was this Poor man cried to the Lord, and he saved me out of all my troubles. Although he was king of the chief city of God, of the chief people of God, king over his entire region and area, he thought of himself as a poor man saved out of his trouble. When we have difficulty forgiving others, it is because we have forgotten what we were forgiven of. We've forgotten that we too were pulled out of mire and set upon a rock. We act as if it was our own struggle that brought us to that place. My least favorite stories are when men have visions and they have powerful experiences, but they describe a time period building up to it where they labored and labored and labored and they prayed and they fasted as if some amount of work will get God to do something for you. Or how about a hunger strike? If you just don't eat long enough, that'll make you somehow spiritually powerful before God? How many of you have been taught that about fasting? Why did the devil show up on the 40th day of Jesus' fast if uh, fasting made you stronger? See, there is nothing that we could do that would earn his favor, except desire him with all of our heart. He responds to the same thing I respond to when my little girl comes in. She's actually interrupting me. I was, I was trying to pray. <laughs> And she taps me on the shoulder and says, Daddy, 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 is that an E? And points to something on the screen. Why do I respond to Abby? Because I love her and I love even more that she wants my attention. Why do you call him Heavenly Father? Because that's what a father is supposed to be like. Why do you call yourself children of God, sons of God? That's what we're supposed to be like. He was trying to remove from them the obstacle that would cause them to be in a scandal. And the scandal on the trap, the offense, would be, having forgotten what you've been forgiven of, you could find it hard to forgive others. Hmm? Turn with me to Joshua 9. You make a left in your Bible. You can go all the way until you hit the table of contents, and then make a right and go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua.
Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country, those in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the great sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hivites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hittites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. Let's go ahead and paint the scene for you. There is a land, and it is full of all kind of ites. <laughs> but there's a new ite on the block, the Israelites. And God has told them, I want you to drive out all of these people. I want you to put them to the sword. I've been waiting 400 years to do this, 400 years in which they would not repent, 400 years in which their sin kept growing rather than drawing near to God. And so I am going to use you like my hand, you prince with God, and I'm going to drive them out. Israel's already been in the business of doing this. They've already whipped a city called Jericho, whipped a city called Ai, and word was beginning to spread. On the other side of the river, they had beaten a king who had to sleep in an iron bed. He was so big, named Og of Bashan. They had beaten everybody they faced, and now the peoples are beginning to talk about it. And there is a group of people called Israelites who are a little strange. They follow their God with a serious heart. They actually do what he said to do. It's way beyond making sacrifices at some temple for a better crop this year. It's almost as if every detail of their life had been orchestrated by him. However, when the people of Gideon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. A ruse is a nice word for what? A lie. A deception. The people of Gibeon heard. They said, oh my goodness, the people of God are coming and they are killing everyone. They didn't want to die. Is that a bad thing? No. Did the people in Jericho want to die? No, of course they didn't want to die. But they didn't believe what God had said to the point that they were doing whatever it took not to die. There was one that did. What was her name? Rahab. And what did she resort to? A lie. A lie. See, Rahab heard also, just like the Gibeonites heard, that there was a battle coming and she was going to be on the losing side and she believed the people of God. In other words, she knew and the Gibeonites knew judgment is near. And they were willing to do whatever it took to avoid dying. Come on, saints, if you can't identify with that at all, you may not have actually gotten saved. One of my least favorite expressions is somebody say, Oh, well, Darren, Darren was just jailhouse religion, you know? Really? Is there some other kind? Is there some other kind? If you weren't drowning in your own sin, if you weren't imprisoned by your own behavior, what is it that you got saved from? Does it make a difference whether there were literal bars or not? It really doesn't. You felt under the judgment of God and wanted to do anything that you could do to escape the judgment that was coming. And I'm just curious. Do people look at Rahab and say, that dirty little whatever, she lied? No, we actually ascribe her as a person of faith, right? Because of why she lied. It's not an endorsement of lying. It's that she wanted to choose life. Not just life for herself, but life for the men who are about to be killed. I want you to begin to think of the Gibeonites in that same light as we go through this. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho, 
and I that resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him, and all the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The deception is that they appeared to be worse off than they actually were. The deception is that they appeared to be coming from further than they actually were. You cannot like their methods. And I don't. But you have to honor their desire. What did they ask for? Did they ask to be made kings in Israel? Did they ask to be part of the ruling class? What did they say? Would you just make a treaty with us? We'd like not to die. Does that demonstrate a trust that God's word was true? Yeah. God said, Israel, I want you to go wipe every one of them out and I'll give you success. They evidently believed it. Does it demonstrate a willingness to submit to God? Yes, look. Whatever it takes, would you make a treaty with me? So their methods were bad. Is it really all that different than the way that people come to Jesus? How many of you, when you came to Jesus, understood all of his workings? How many of you understood the right way to behave in any and every situation? So maybe your methods weren't that great, but one thing should have powerfully motivated you. You really didn't want to fall under his judgment. You just wanted to make a treaty. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, which are also Gibeonites, but perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? See, Israel was told, I don't want you to show mercy on these people. We are your servants, they said to Joshua. Is that humility? What was the apostles' problem when they said, would you increase our faith, Lord? Would you increase our faith? We don't know if we can forgive people who hurt us. It sounds a little bit like they forgot the way in which they came to the Lord. And so he told them a parable to remind them of what servants' attitudes are supposed to be like. See, if you were under a death sentence, if you were just one of hundreds of thousands of people who were all going to be killed because Joshua was coming, and you were spared, you probably are not going to run to one of those other people and point out all the problems in their life. You were all under the same death sentence. You probably just rejoice that Joshua had saved you all because of a treaty, wouldn't you? You think maybe we lose perspective in the kingdom? Maybe we tend to focus on minor things and forget the most major event that has happened in anybody's life? Saints, when you look at your life, so you struggle a little bit. So maybe there's one area that you're having a hard time getting right with God. You're going to throw away your entire relationship because of that? What if we all treated each other that way? Is there anybody in here that's been friends with somebody 10 years and never even had a minor disagreement? Your friendship must not be very interesting. I love my wife more than any of you, and I we seldom go 10 days without at least a minor disagreement. I mean, as long as we all understand that she's always right, it goes fine. <laughs> However, I guess let's pick up in 8. We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country. Why? 
because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports about him. How did you come to the Lord? You must have heard something was good about him, right? We heard about the reports about your God. I know people that will cheat on their taxes because they don't want to pay an extra hundred bucks. know a bunch of them in church. We're really going to get mad at these people because they told a lie to save their lives. We have such high moral standards for other people, don't we? We have difficulty applying that same level of judgment to our own lives often, though, don't we? I want you to see how this works out for them. Our God is able to look past your methods and see right into the desires of your heart. And He will give you what you need, not necessarily what you deserve. He is not a big angry God with a stick standing over Steve going, Come on, man. Step out of line a little bit. Oh, damn! I got it! He lied. I got to burn him. And maybe I'll get to burn another one today. Let's watch Bob for a while. <laughs> that is not our God. He's encouraging us. He's putting people around us. He's even whispering in your ear, this way, that way, oh, don't do that. That's going to end up hurting you. In fact, you will not find a single prohibition in the Bible that is not there for the purpose of preserving your life. I think I probably ought not go through all of those, but let me just pick one that most people have wrestled with at some point in their life. The most natural thing in the world for two people that are of opposite genders to be drawn to each other is the most powerful drawing in our physical bodies, and God put it there. Why would he put limits on that of any kind? As a pastor, one of the things that I often get to see are the pieces of people's lives when they have done eternal things with each other without the protection of an eternal covenant. And it most certainly leaves scars and broken lives. It's not about being dirty. It's not about being perverse or bad. God is trying to protect us. He's trying to protect us. And He gives us these things and He provides the areas in which they can all be fulfilled under the protection of lifelong commitments, under the banner of a treaty that says, I'm going to treat you this way. You're going to treat me this way. Neither one of us are disposable to one another. There's not a thing in the world that he would ask you to do that was not to protect your very life. Verse 9. They answered, We are your servants. We have come from a very distant country because of the name, or I'm sorry, the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Are you counting those? Three times they presented themselves as servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now, see how dry and moldy it is? And these wineskins that were filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. Made a treaty of peace.
to let them live. Now let me ask you something. They didn't inquire of the Lord. But you know him. He's the kind of guy that can destroy an entire city. He's the kind of guy that can speak and have the earth open its mouth and swallow people in rebellion to him. He's the kind that can flood the entire planet, save eight people. Do you really think that if he didn't want this to happen, he couldn't have stopped it? Of course he could. Of course he could. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. See, the people of God are supposed to be different than the people of the world. When we give our word, it's supposed to be as good as a contract. And there was a time in society where that was at least esteemed to the point where it was almost insulting. If you wanted a contract, we should simply shake on it, they used to say. But when the people of God don't act like God, other things become necessary. They ratified it with their oath. When they said, we will make a treaty, the treaty was as good as written in blood. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out on the third day and came to their cities, Gibeon, Jephiroth, Biroth, Kiriath, Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. I'm curious, do you think Jesus' oath to you is better than the leaders of some civil, civil government? If he taught his people that their oath was binding, then how much more is his oath binding? So when the word says, he that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, were you the exclusion to that rule? This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Woodcutters and water carriers. This is what household servants do. Now it's interesting. Gabriel brought up a point at the men's retreat as I was sharing this. Look at these next few words. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why do you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Isn't that a little bit like the rabbit saying, no, don't throw me in the briar patch? See, because what they were most concerned about was ceasing to exist. Do you think that after having that concern alleviated, they were going to worry about a little thing like the way in which they would exist? See, it's called a curse here, but how many times in your life has God turned a curse into a blessing for you? King James Bible in Genesis 3.17 says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. But friends, it doesn't stay that way. It's being remade. It's being made new. Deuteronomy 23.5 says, God turned a curse into a blessing for you. And Numbers 13.2 says the same thing. It's actually put in brackets for you so that you can find it in the middle of a verse. If you were worried about preserving your life, 
It might even be good news to say, you're going to be our servants. But you know what would be better news than that? This God that you've heard about, this God whose fame has traveled everywhere, you're going to be a servant in his house. Did you hear Joshua's words? You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve, which is the thing they've already asked for three previous times and are going to a fourth, as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Oh no, don't throw me back in the briar patch. They answered Joshua, your servants, that's time number four, were clearly told how the Lord God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. Listen to these next three words. So Joshua saved them. Did he curse them or save them? saved them. Jesus became a curse in your place. See, the rules of the treaty were that when you sinned, it had to be punished. But Joshua punished them in such a way that it would always put them in the house of God, which is the very thing that they needed. Come on now, that is discipline as a son. That is not punishment of an enemy. If my child has an inability to drown, and I punish him, if I curse him and say, never will you go in the water again, that's not really uh, inflicting harm on him, is he? It's preserving his life. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters, and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. As we look into this a little deeper, you know, in Israel, there are 12 tribes. And of those 12 tribes, only one of them was allowed to serve at the altar. That was the Levites. And of the Levites... Not all the Levites got to go serve in the, at the altar in the temple. It was chosen by lot, and you had to be in a particular clan of Levites that came from Aaron's family. So that meant in the majority of the people that are called Israel, most would never get to work in the service of the altar. And now we have a foreign people group who were destined for destruction... That because of a treaty by a man named Joshua, whose name happens to be the same Hebrew name, Yeshua, get to serve in the temple of God forever and ever? That's sounding a little bit like Gentiles that are grafted into Israel. Isn't it? I want to tell you a little bit about Gibeon. The city of Gibeon was allotted to one of the twelve tribes. It was called Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my happiness. Son of my joy. These people got to live in the territory of the sons of God's joy. You can find that in Joshua 18.25. Then, in the territory of Benjamin, every territory had to allot certain areas for the Levites to live because the Levites worked for God and had no inheritance of their own. 
So in the territory of my father's joy, son of joy, Gibeah became a Levitical city. The place where these people lived became the Levitical city for the area. That's a long ways from just having your life spared, isn't it? That's kind of being elevated to working right alongside the priests of God. Am I the only one that finds that special at all? You like this one. Gibeah means city on a hill. Isn't that what Jesus said you are? A city on a hill? The Gibeonites asked four times. They asked in verse 8, they asked in verse 9, they asked in verse 11, and verse 24. Your servants are here for a treaty. Your servants. The curse that they received made them exactly what they asked for. Servitude. That would never end in the house of God. Now let me ask you something, saints. If I said, Darren, you will never cease to serve the Lord your God. Is that a curse or a blessing? Isn't the very thing that he wants more than anything else in his life to never have a period where that ends? Sounds like a blessing to me. By the way, if you just want some extra fun, look at Genesis 9.27. Blessed be the God of Shem. May Japheth's territory extend into the tent of Shem. And may Canaan, give me a nice lift in Canaan, become their servant. It's being fulfilled. God has an appropriate place for every member of humanity. Some serve in the temple. Some proclaim in the temple. Everybody is working for God in some manner of speech. Wouldn't it be great to know exactly what your position was for lifelong and your children's 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 children? You can call the Gibeonites saved. And the reason that you can call them saved is because the phrase... Yeshua, Yehoshua, saved, is in verse 26. They were saved. By the way, Yehoshua means Yahweh's salvation. So in Hebrew, that literally says Yahweh's salvation saved. I would call them saved, wouldn't you? I want to read this one to you. Go to 2 Samuel 21. Uh, you guys know I spank my kids, right? That's not a big secret. Some of you may have been lucky enough to witness that bloody affair. <laughs> Has anybody else in here ever spanked my kids? No. Select few of you that we've put in authority over them, I would welcome it. But I'm probably not going to let some stranger that walked by smack my kids around, huh? That's one of the signs... That those children belong to me, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. You discipline your children. Somebody else only disciplines your children with permission, right? Second Samuel. I told you 21, right? Yes. During the reign of David, there was a famine. By the way, from the time period we were just reading about to here, four or five hundred years has passed. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. You know, a famine in national Israel is a pretty big deal. That's a pretty serious uh, slap across the face. Because you're an agricultural society. 
and a livestock community. And when you have no water, you have no grain. When you have no grain, you have nothing to feed your animals. The people starve in this kind of situation. And then Israel was on a special rotation. Every six years, they planted and sowed and reaped, and on seventh year, they didn't. So it depends on where that three-year famine fell as to how bad this famine actually was. So they sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, is it, a, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate, annihilate them. A rightful Israelite went out and took it upon himself to punish the Gibeonites. What he apparently didn't know was that at this point, although they're not part of Israel, since they were saved by Joshua, and there was a treaty that was ratified by them, God treated the Gibeonites like his own children, and he protected them. He did not allow it to rain, did not allow things to happen for Israel's life to be sustained for the sake of the Gibeonites to get Israel's attention. This sounds a little bit like these people are grafted into Israel without becoming Israelites. This is the church. But what is more importantly the church is Saul took it upon himself to try to punish them for something God didn't want to punish them for. This is what it is like when we look at our brother's speck in their eye and ignore the log in our own. And God will never feed that kind of behavior. We do not serve a fault-finding critical God. We find a merciful empowering, loving king of the universe. And if he sends a famine, it's to change your direction. David and the Gibeonites get together and they talk, and they change the direction. By the way, do you know what motivated Saul's behavior? God had told him to do some other things that he didn't do because they were too hard. So he went and did something that was easier. He picked on the Gibeonites. And what were the Gibeonites? Well, they're from his hometown. Saul was from Gibeah, from the tribe of Benjamin. And they were servants, household servants to the Levites. You talk about an easy target. Go beat up the priest kids. Hmm. Is it really all that much different if we cast slur on our fellow man and they happen to be in the body of Christ? We're supposed to be at warfare, saints. But it's not with each other. And it's not with the people of the world. It's with the powerful prince that holds them in his hand. This is what the Word teaches us. There were sacrifices at Gibeah. Gibeah did not just become a Levitical city. It became the place where the altar of the Lord was, even after the ark of God had moved on. David sacrificed there. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles 16.39. He went to inquire of God in the hometown of the Gibeahites, where they were household servants in the house of God. Solomon received his vision that told him he'd be the wisest man in all the world. You know where he received it? At Gibeah, where the altar of the Lord was, and the Gibeonites were serving perpetually. How about that? So let me tell you, is it possible for a curse to become a blessing? But maybe a bigger warning, and we don't have time to read it, and it would make most of you blush if you did. You read Ezekiel 16 and tell me whether or not it's possible for a blessing to become a curse. 
See, one of the problems is when we forget where we've come, when we feel so blessed that we forget what it was like to have huge areas of weakness and need in our life, you can become haughty. You can become proud. God tells the story of finding a little girl, a baby, an infant, that could not take care of herself. And he describes her in the most wretched, pitiful shape. And he raises her. And he takes care of her. And he showers gifts upon her. And those gifts, those blessings, became for her something that was a source of pride that she used to hire foreign lovers to come in and be a husband to her. That's what Ezekiel 16 teaches. The very blessings of God had become a snare for Israel. Could that not be said of the church? The day you get let out of jail, you don't want to pick on anybody. You're just excited to be part of it. But after you've been out ten years, you might have forgotten what it was like to be in great need. That is the shape of the body of Christ. I think what we need to focus on is being God's Gibeonites. I want to point out some similarities to you between Rahab and the Gibeonites, and then we're going to wrap up the service. Rahab, in the second chapter of Joshua, 11th verse, said that she had heard about the fame of God. The Gibeonites, in the ninth chapter and ninth verse, said the same thing. Rahab said in the second chapter and ninth verse that she knew the city was going to be destroyed. The Gibeonites, in the ninth chapter and 24th verse, said the very same thing. In the second chapter and fourth verse, Rahab lied to save lives. In the ninth chapter and sixth verse, the Gibeonites lied to save lives. In the sixth chapter and twenty-third verse, Rahab was saved, and everyone in her family, and all who belonged to them, (laughs) were saved. In the ninth chapter, twenty-sixth and twenty-seventh verse, every Gibeonite was saved. Why would we look at Gibeonites in a negative fashion as deceivers, and Rahab as a woman of faith? They received the same thing. They went about it in the same way. Don't we have a fine way of looking at people's lives and summing them up by a single action? That guy is the one who, whatever. Really, when did he do that? Oh, it was 8th grade, and he's 67 years old now? How good of you to be able to remember that. Saints, I'm looking forward to building the community of saints that care more about what somebody does tomorrow than what they did yesterday. So that if you were brought in here caught in the very act of adultery, we could refuse to throw stones at you and just say, leave your life of sin. We'll help you do it. Isn't that kind of what was done with us? Wasn't a treaty made? Maybe the most important thing you could get from the Gibeonites, though, is they were happy. Happy to be stone cutter, or woodcutters and water carriers. Selfish ambition leaves room for every kind of evil. It really does. The best thing that you could do is remember that you were called first and foremost to be servants in the house of God. And a servant doesn't concern himself with the other servants. He just tries to please his master. Right? Maybe that's what Paul meant when he said, Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls in the 14th chapter of Romans. Wouldn't you want to hang out in a place like that where everybody had just been pardoned? Everybody had just received a life sentence instead of a death sentence? Yeah, me too. 
And I bet as we begin to cultivate that, others will be drawn to this place like a moth to a flame. doesn't mean that if your brother sins, you don't rebuke him. It means you rebuke him and forgive him. Amen? Amen. Y'all going to forgive people? Yes. Amen. Let's stand up. Let's pray. Mostly because I'm hungry. I conditioned myself during the course of the retreat to eat about every 20 minutes. Okay. About every 15 minutes. I promise I wasn't going to lie. And now it's difficult to go an hour without doing that. We leaped off of a deck into freezing cold water. Uh, and the experience was so horrible that we found it necessary to do this again and again. <laughs> And one word came up more than any other. Exhilarating. And it was. It was exhilarating. Uh, your senses are completely enlivened. Sharpened like a tack for that moment. Survival instinct kicks in. You can almost walk upon the water to get out of it. Since the Bible tells us to prepare our minds for action. Peter told us to prepare our minds for action. I'm asking that your spiritual life would become exhilarating, that you would embrace your role as a wood cutter and water carrier, and that you'd do it with all of your heart, and you wouldn't worry about how well your brother's carrying wood or water. You'd just help him do it, right? None of us deserve to be here. Isn't that great? None of us deserve to be here. And yet Joshua, Yeshua, Yehoshua, say this. Amen? Let's pray. <laughs> Mighty God, Lord, we thank you for the chance to work in your house all the days of our lives. Lord, we may not be Levites, but by your treaty with us, you have put us right in the same household, and we thank you for it. Holy One, we're asking that you would use us in any way that would see fit to you. And Lord, that we would learn to serve you with smiles upon our faces and a helping hand towards our brothers. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we also uh, bless our fellowship over the food. Amen. Amen. All right, hey, let's move chairs and bring in the food.